Amen. All right, so 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. <clears throat> we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And Father, we do thank you again for this day. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would lead us now, and it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. So I don't normally do a show of hands, but I just kind of want to know if I'm all alone here. Um, how many of you struggle with like a sensitive conscience? Like, is there like at least a couple of us here? Like, I have a super sensitive conscience, super... Um, like it's always been that way, like just a guilty conscience. Like if I, like from a little kid, if I did something and I realized I had like did, so, I would quickly like try to undo it. Or if I didn't, um, I would feel guilty. And so a few years ago, it was back in 2007, I found myself going through the interview process with the sheriff's department as a chaplain. And one of the steps along the way is you have to take this uh, voice stress test. And so they, this is not, lie detector tests are, are, I think, made for people with guilty consciences. And so then they totally stacked the deck. They put me in this uh, gray room. Everything was gray. The walls were gray. The table was gray. Everything was gray. And then they, they pumped the AC down to about 34 degrees. And so I'm like shivering the whole time. The lady comes in and she's like, good to see you, Mr. Hansen. We have some questions to go over your stuff. And I, she started asking me a bunch of questions, bunch of questions about everything. And I'd say stuff and she's like, that's not against the law. I'm like, yeah, it's against God's law. And so I feel bad about it. And I'm like, she's like, that's not what we're here for. I'm like, but I'm a chaplain. So I'm like, <laughs> and, uh, and so we get about like 20 minutes into this. She shuts down the machine and she's like, you keep failing. And I'm like, of course I do. I'm telling you, like, and, and I'm like, and she's like, I'm going to turn off the machine and I need to ask you some questions. She's like, what's troubling you right now? And I'm like, lady, you're asking me if I've taken like a pencil from my work. When I was in the Navy every like September 15th, they would say, you guys need to go to REI and spend $10,000 each on whatever you want to spend it on, or we're not going to get the money next year. So I'm like, lady, I've had kayaks and knives and boots and stuff. And you're asking me about pencils. And I'm like, I don't think I was stealing, but it didn't feel right. Like I, like, and I kind of was trying to joke, like somebody has to waste the government's money. Like we have to kind of like trying to like, and so then she's like, okay. Then she turns back on the machine. She's like, other than anything that we've talked about, is anything bothering you? I'm like, nope, I got it all out. Like, and so I passed. And so the the reason I bring this up is as we go through 1 John, 
First John has a number of these, these tests. Like, do you have sound doctrine? How are you treating people? What are the things that you're doing? These are things that you can examine your life to see if you're walking right with God. And I think at this point in the letter, the Apostle John is recognizing that there are many of us who have a sensitive conscience. Like, I love that I just happened to ask John to preach on me on, like, the, the sin ones. He's like, why do you keep asking me to preach on the sin ones? I'm like, well, I think a lot of the Bible's the sin ones. Like, and, and so he gets done preaching. He's like, I don't think I'm fit to be doing this because I look at my life and I look at this. And, and so I, my, I suspect that John has a sensitive conscience. I didn't know if he raised your hand or not. Like, he's like, I'm not telling you. I'm like, but like, if you're reading this and you're going through the text, you can be a believer in Christ, you can be good with God, but your conscience could be just like attacking you. And, and I think that John recognizes that the individual's conscience could be so on the attack mode that the person who's actually good with God and who is actually right with God and has passed all of these tests is now feeling condemnation from their heart or their conscience. You can use these uh, sort of interchangeably. Uh, the conscience can certainly be used by God, but the conscience is definitely not a reliable source to gauge whether we are right or wrong before God. And so today, he begins sort of with this. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and we will assure, or you could translate that word, persuade our heart or consciences before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And so right away, we, we begin with, we will know by this. So like, what's the this that he's talking about? He says, we will know by this. There's something that we will know that we have within us that affirms that we're in the truth or not of the truth. And I think we have to go back to the previous verse to get the context to know what the this is. And I think that the this is, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed and truth. And so he's saying, as you're actually like loving and serving and giving of yourself, it can affirm to you that you're actually in the truth. And so having the love of God, something that's distinct from our own sort of love, when we see God's love manifest itself in our life, it, it kind of does something with it. Like, it's kind of like, whoa, that's, that's against my character. I, um, I've shared with a number of people, I had an incident happen to me on Monday. This is like, you know, you're not supposed to let your right hand know what the left hand is doing, and I'm not doing this for, for any of this. I'm just, so much of how I go through the text, you guys just see my life. And so on Monday, uh, I, I was running errands, and I was, you know, Gideon was down, and I was doing my little loop of the grocery shopping, and the day was running short. Life has been a blur. We have a sick kid, and we have a new puppy, and so it's like there's all of this stuff is going on. I'm pulling into Aldi parking lot, and as I'm pulling into my parking spot, some dude kind of walks up like this, and I'm like, oh, no. I'm thinking, I got a, I got a flat tire. I got a, I don't know, a puppy dangling off my fender or something. Like something bad is happening. And so then I roll down my window, and as I roll down my window, I immediately shift gears. I'm thinking, oh, no, this guy wants money. I just got suckered into a guy, like, and I'm not, like, if you know me, I am not, 
like I've just done too many like times with the the like ride-alongs and seeing people in the streets. Like I just don't give money to people in the street. I don't like. It sounds terrible, but I just don't. Like I just don't. And so I I see the guy's gonna ask me for money, and then I see he's got like a water bottle like hanging on his back pocket with a rag. I'm like, oh no, it's even worse. He's gonna wash my windows, and then he's done a service, and then he's gonna force me for money. The people who laughed, you're just like me. Like I can see. And then the guy like. He says, listen, I just got out of Chino four days ago. Chino is like a fed, like a, not a federal, but a state penitentiary for like hard crime. And he's like, is there any way you could get me some chicken? And he points to Mike's barbecue. And I don't know, like, my inclination is always to say no. And I look at him like, yeah, dude, I'll get you some chicken. And I pull in and I, I park the car, and I start walking towards Aldi. For those of you who know this strip mall, I'm like, hey, what's your name? He's like, my name is Brother Michael. And I'm like, okay. And he started talking, and I was like, hey, were you in the military? And he, of course, did what every Marine does, you know, oorah. I was in the Marine Corps. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, well, where are you from? And he's like, I'm from Memphis. He kind of tells me, like, where his family is. And then we get to the mall. We're making our way down to Mike's Barbecue. I'm like, hey, you introduced yourself as Brother Michael. What, what do you mean by that? Like, what, what do you, and he's like, well, I gave my life to Christ, and I'm a Christian now. And, uh, and I'm like, interesting. I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. And he's like, he kind of laughed. He's like, I thought you were the one that I was supposed to ask for chicken. And I'm like, I was like, no, you don't understand, because I'm not the guy you want to ask for chicken, because I'm not, like, I'm not normally like this. And so then I go in with him, and I sit down with him, and we order. Like, I'm like, dude, get, like, what do you really want? He's like, can I get ribs? I'm like, yeah, I, I want some. He's like, I like, I like you already. Like, you want beef ribs? <laughs> and then so he orders, and I talk to him, and he kind of shared with me. And then we prayed, and I'll, like, not, I'll spare you the details of his background, but he was an active-duty Marine when something happened. And he, it sounds like he's going to be okay, but he needs 30 days for the VA to kick in and and I prayed with him, and I walked away. And I remember walking, like, I'm like, hey, dude, I hate to, like, just buy you lunch and run, but I, I, I actually have four kids, and I need to do all this grocery shopping. And if I tell Anna, like, hey, I'm having lunch at Mike's Barbecue, she's like, what are you doing? Like, like what's... Um, but I remember just, like, walking out of there almost, like, adrenaline up. Kind of, like, something happened that wasn't of me. And I think when you experience Christ and he becomes your Lord and you have his spirit, you'll, you'll have these encounters wh- where the way you respond is different than how you would normally respond. And, and there's no other way to explain it other than God just did something. And it make I know me and this doesn't reflect who I am. And I think that what John is saying here is we will know by this, like when you have these encounters, when you're generous, which is against your nature, or you're loving in a way that is against your nature, it it seems to affirm to us that you are of the truth and that you know God, you love God, and that God is within you. And he says, and we'll assure our heart before him that there's this assurance that we have in whatever our heart condemns us. So here's our heart. It's like this courtroom scene. You're uh, the one being prosecuted. 
Your heart is the attorney going against you. And then you have like God as the judge. And so our heart within us is condemning us, saying, you're wrong. You've done all these sins. You're, God will never love you. He'll never forgive you for this. Or remember all of those times, certainly God missed that one thing that you did, and you're still condemned for that. And so there's this, this trial that's happening, and he recognizes this. And he says, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And I think before we get into this, that God is greater than our heart, I, I want to speak sort of about the heart or what the Bible says about our conscience. Because certainly our conscience can be a good guide. It can be the thing that you kind of step off course and the Holy Spirit uses it to like zap you to say, hey, that's wrong. You need to not do that. And you come back over here. And it, like in an ideal situation, the conscience is used sort of in conjunction with God's spirit, and it's a beautiful thing and can really help us to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to God. However, comma, our conscience is not reliable at all. I'm not going to read all of these verses, but in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, Paul talks about to the person apart from God that within humanity, it's like the law of God is written in their hearts. And through this like this ultimate sense of like what's right and wrong it's within a person and we see it within their conscience and he says their conscience bearing witness to their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them and so you're kind of living your life and your conscience is either saying attaboy or you really screwed up there attaboy oh you did wrong there like constantly going back and forth, sort of either affirming your position or accusing you. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, this longer section, uh, we see that a conscience is unreliable or it can be misaligned, I think is probably the better uh, phrase. And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to two believers. One is a Gentile believer, the other is is a Jewish believer. They've come to Christ, but they have two different backgrounds. For the Jewish individual, when they would go to the meat market, they would pay for the more expensive meat uh, because they, in their minds, it was pure, it was undefiled, um, it, nothing had been done to it uh, spiritually that was wrong. To the Gentile person, they're like, hey, this is like 75% off and the reason, just because it was sacrificed to some idol, idols aren't a big deal. Like, they're not real. And so you're getting the same cut of meat, except it just got slaughtered at the altar of the pagan god. And now we have it for free. And so in this whole scenario, Paul is saying we want to be sensitive. The stronger one, the stronger individual in this example is the, is the individual who is okay eating this meat at a, at a fraction of the price, who I would be in that category, He's saying, no, don't do that because your brother in Christ or your brother in Christ who comes from a Jewish background to him, this meat is the most contaminated, unpure thing. Even though he's in Christ, in his mind, there are very few things that are worse that he could do than eat this meat. So you eat the more expensive meat or don't eat any meat when you're around this person. Then Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 2, he informs us that our consciences can be seared. Uh, think of a branding iron. Like when you, when you have something that's bleeding 
and you put hot iron to it and it cauterizes it. It numbs the ends. It stops it from doing whatever it's doing. And ultimately, it becomes damaged. So what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, uh, it says, By means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience with a branding iron. And what this is saying, dealing with our hearts and our conviction, is you start doing something. You, you might feel like, hey, this isn't right initially. But then you do it over and over and over and over and over again. And then eventually your heart, your conscience is calloused. And it no longer feels the zap that it should feel. Um, There's a whole lot of things that we could sort of go and expand on this. But it's very easy to violate your conscience. Super hard to do something for the first time. The second time's a little bit easier. The third time, a little bit more easy. By the time you've done it 10 times, it's like you no longer feel what you should feel. And then the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 22, which we'll look at later today, is we're told that our consciences through the blood of Christ can be cleansed and sort of restored into new sensitivity. And the point of all of this, and I think what the apostle or what the apostle John is saying here is that when we stand before God or we go about our lives with Christ, we cannot count or rely upon our consciences to be correct or accurate. They're not reliable guides. They should never be used alone. And so then in verse 19, we continue. So we know that we are of the truth and, that, and will assure our heart before him and whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. This is a huge phrase. God is greater than your heart. Your heart is not reliable. God is greater than your guilty conscience. And so when we are sort of faced with a conscience that's troubling us and we're concerned about like, how do we handle this? How do we navigate this? My conscience is telling me that I am wrong or that this is wrong and I don't know how to like, proceed. I don't know how to move forward. And so I think that there's a couple of things that we should do when we have a gnawing conscious. I think the first thing is we need to pray, like pause and say, God, I'm like feeling really convicted about this point or whatever this situation is. My conscience is uneasy right now. And so we should pause. We should ask God for wisdom, for guidance. Uh, we should then go on the quest to sort of discover what does the Bible actually say about the issue at hand? The Bible might have a, vi- like, it could be that you're doing something inappropriate that the Bible says absolutely like, hey, it is without a doubt, this is wrong in what you're doing. So you go to the Bible and you go, oh, you know what? My conscience is actually pretty accurate right now. It's telling me I shouldn't do this. And so then I need to get my heart in check. I need to thank God for my conscience. I need a reverse course. I need to repent. I need to confess. I need to seek help so that I don't go down that path. Or you could study the Bible and go, wow, I really thought that, but the Bible doesn't actually say, like, I, I shouldn't do this. I also think as we seek the Bible, we should have godly counsel that we can go to. You should have people in your life who have been walking with the Lord much longer than you. And you can say, hey, I am going through this. I'm feeling really bad about this. Have you ever experienced this? Have you gone through this? 
You have somebody that's 20, 30, 40, five years ahead of you in the Christian life, and they could say, oh yeah, you know, I struggled with that early on, and this is how God sort of like worked this issue in my life. Um, And so as we go through these steps, praying, seeking what the Bible says, seeking godly counsel to navigate these things, number one, it could clear our conscience. Our our conscience could be relieved. God is greater. I'm I'm, I'm condemning myself because I just have a guilty conscience. This isn't what the Bible says. The Bible says, yes, I'm a sinner. And the thing I'm I'm condemning myself on is I'm condemning myself for my sin. Um, But the reality is Jesus died for my sin. And his work on the cross was sufficient for me. And I no longer have to beat myself up over this sin anymore. This is something I struggled with terribly. I knew in theory that God forgave me on the cross and that I trusted in him, but I felt like he was letting me off the hook. So then I wanted to continue to beat myself up for years and years and years. It took me, I don't know how long, into the Christian life to where I could really come to the place where I was at peace for some of the things in my background to know, you know what? Jesus forgave me, and by my not forgiving myself and letting myself off the hook, what I'm doing is I'm minimizing the work of the cross. And I'm trying to do more uh, to sort of complete the action. So it could clear your conscience, or it could lead you uh, to conviction. That you're, it could, you could come to learn that what you're actually doing is wrong. And you know that the actions with the, the, this individual or this circumstance or whatever you're going through, what you're doing is actually a violation of what God wants from you. And the Holy Spirit is indeed convicting you, and you need to get right with God. You need to confess your sin. You need to repent. You need to seek help in order to like uh, break free from the bondage of whatever sin that it is that you're in. And this is a beautiful thing. You know, Halloween is tomorrow. And every year I think about this girl that I was in seminary or Bible college. I forget. They kind of overlap for me. Um, I know, you know, for those who've been around you, you've heard all my stories before. But I can't rewrite all my stories because it's like they happen. So it was Halloween day. I had seminary class. It was at Shadow Mountain. And where my seminary was, it was like up on the hill. You had to, you had to kind of go into the church parking lot, go up to your class, and class was on Halloween because Halloween's not really a national holiday. It's not a, like school happens on Halloween. And so I got there kind of early. The church was having, you know, the Christian form of Halloween, the Harvest Festival, and I just remember going, man, this stinks. I'm not getting any free candy. And like, I, you know, cause ho- like Halloween for me always with growing up was just like get as much candy as you could and put whatever little effort you had to in an outfit to, that crossed the line of entitling you to candy. And so I was like, I'm not getting any free candy. I didn't have kids. I didn't have anything. It was just like, I just wanted the free candy. And so then I walk into the classroom and there was only another student, this female, and she was distraught and totally like bawling in the corner, visibly shaken. And I remember kind of like going into the classroom and going, oh, I'm a Navy SEAL instructor right now. I'm not a pastor. I'm learning to be a pastor. So I want to kind of sneak out. And, but she saw me and I'm, and so I'm kind of there not, not knowing how to engage with her. And thankfully this other dude who I like, this other guy, I'm, if I didn't go to church here, I would go to a black Baptist church because I love that culture. 
And it was one of my buddies that had been a black pastor. Well, he was black. He was born black, but he was, he was, he was a black Baptist pastor. And he'd been a pastor for many, many years. And so he walks in and there's just like a way that they have to talk and the canter and, and he goes up, puts his arm around her. He's like, what's going on, sister so-and-so? I can't remember her name. And she's like, listen, I was a witch before I became a, a Christian. And do you understand the evil that it happens on this holiday? And I'm going, yeah, you might get Milky Way. Like that to me was like the evil way that I could get a Milky Way, not a Snickers bar. And she's like, no, no, no. There's like horrific things happen. And I was like, I, I'm like to each their own. And they, like then like people were filing into class and then the teacher came and it became one of these teaching moments that uh, like so much of seminary for me was not like the books for one thing, but it was like on the sidelines, these things that happened. And I remember the professor came in, a real old guy. And he's like, listen, the seminary stands on the word of God. And for most people, most people didn't come out of like witchcraft and doing things on Halloween. And so we're sensitive to what you're doing and we respect, we're mindful of this and, and we're going to like honor your conscience. And so he kind of like talked her through what the Bible said. Then he, he put a pause and said, nobody like argue against what she's feeling. Like she's feeling what she's feeling. And then he went on to say, like, even if your conscience is off, you should be sensitive not to, like, violate your conscience, to leave room for God then to adjust the person's conscience. Because I don't know that I'm expressing this well enough, but, but you could feel this way, you could be wrong, your conscience could be wrong. And if you suddenly violate it, it has the same action of you getting used to violating your conscience. And he's like, what we want to do is to allow God to realign her conscience to his word and so that her conscience begins to fire in the right way. And the reality is the professor sort of ended with this. He's like, listen, the reality is, is Halloween is what Halloween is. And I don't know that we have a case to make against this girl saying Halloween isn't what it is. And I'm not here making a case against Halloween. I'm just sharing the story about this lady's conscience. It was, it was, it was huge. For me, like this was like I never encountered a witch like that Halloween was like this sort of a big deal for. And how did I get here? How do we handle our gnawing conscience? So if our conscience is bothering us, we pray, we seek God, we seek his word, we seek godly Christian counsel and allow God to work through that. And the flow chart either results in you discovering that what you are feeling or what you thought conviction-wise doesn't align with Scripture, and you actually have freedom to go a different direction if you choose to go the different direction, or maybe you have freedom to hold course that you're convicted upon it, but then it, it, it builds humility into you, saying, I'm really convicted about this, but I can't project this on others. Or it could be you're just outright wrong before God, and it forces you to say, I am wrong. I either have to, like, I, I have to figure out how to handle uh, with my sin that's been exposed. But he says, we know, virtu- okay, back to John. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him and that whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. God is bigger than your conscience, which is putting you on trial and trying to condemn you 
of things that you shouldn't be condemned for. He then goes on to the positive. He doesn't expand or explore the whole idea of a conscience in full. He just says, beloved, in verse 21, if our heart does not condemn us. So if you have a clear conscience, um, he's not addressing if you have a seared conscience or your conscience is off. He's just saying if your conscience is clear, your heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, right away, I'm just going to say, I'm not going to address this. We're short on time. Um, this, whatever we ask, we could run with this in a, in a whole direction. We will deal with this in a couple chapters. Uh, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, John puts some parameters, some guidelines on what he's, he's saying in this, in this particular place. He basically says, whatever you ask according to God's will, if you're walking with God, abiding with God, then you're asking the things that are in alignment or in agreement with God. And if you're asking for things that are in alignment with God's will, then God will deliver his will. This isn't like that God's a genie and you can ask for whatever you want to ask. But we're not going to deal with this. He just says, if our heart does not condemn us, you have confidence. You have assurance. The whole purpose of First John is he's trying to bring assurance to these believers, assurance that they know they are right with God, assurance that they're abiding with him. They're, he is trying to move them into this fellowship, this intimacy with God. This, the purpose of First John is not to move believers into shaky ground and to make them feel like they're, they're miserable human beings that will never amount to anything and will never get right with God and that they will always be condemned. That's not what he's doing. He's trying to move us from uncertainty to a certainty, to know that you're saved, that you are secure before God. And so he says, if your heart doesn't condemn you, you have confidence before God. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 22, we read, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, the holy place, this place that no one could enter beforehand, he says, we as believers now have access to the holiest of holies through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we're told that the blood of Christ is sufficient. Jesus died for us. And if you have trusted in him, his substitute on the cross, his place there was sufficient for me. It was sufficient for you. And we have assurance before God, not based on our works, based on his work. He goes on to say, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And it's like, oh, I thought this was about faith. What's he talking about? Like now it's suddenly we have assurance based on his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. What, what are these commandments? What are we supposed to be doing? What are the things that are pleasing in his sight? This is my German brain going, give me the boxes that I need to check. Because like, suddenly I thought I was good, but now you're telling me there's things that I have to do. And it's like, Gunnar, just relax. Keep reading. Keep reading. He's going to tell you. In verse 23, okay, this is the commandment. What, what, what commandments do you need to keep? This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. 
That's, that's the commandment. Believe. Jesus died for you. He was your substitute. The commandment that you're supposed to keep is keep on believing. Your conscience starts riddling you with guilt for sins that you've done in your past. You just stop the thought and say, you know what? I absolutely did sin. But you know what? Jesus died for me. He paid for that sin on the cross, and it was sufficient. And before, because of his work on the cross, I can stand with full assurance before God, not because of my work. You're right. My, my works are sinful. My works are worthy of eternal condemnation. But the Bible tells me that Jesus died for me, and there was an exchange, my life for his. And then he goes on to say, and love one another. So we're to believe in Jesus. We're to love one another. It was Jesus on the night which he was betrayed, the night which he was executed. He told his disciples that they were to love one another. And as they loved one another, the world would know that his love abided in them. Sure sounds easy, doesn't it? <laughs> Easier said than done. So like this text, our, our marching order is abide in Christ. Hold his hand. Same story. Padres are out of the World Series. They're not where they make it to the World Series. But the, the illustration of Petco Park with my little boys, like going there on the crowded days, like, boys, hold my hand. Stay close to me. Keep your eyes on me. Abiding with Jesus, we live in a world that's fallen. There's a lot of temptation. There's a lot of uh, places where we can get steered off course. And what the Bible is telling us, Jesus is saying to you, hold my hand. Walk with me. Stay close. And as you stay close with me, my love will be in you, and you love others as I have loved you. And he goes on to say, verse 24, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. Now John introduces this new thought. Um, I, I believe it's the first time in John that he said this. So we have had this abide in him, walk with Jesus, hold Jesus' hand. But then he says, as you abide in him, he, if you're reading the New American Standard and probably all of the other translations, if it capitalizes the he, he, now we're talking about Jesus, God, he is in you. So you're in him, he is in you. There's this, this, uh, this abiding. And we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given. So if you have trusted in Christ, we're told in Ephesians 1.13, that at that moment of belief, the Spirit of God has sealed you for the day of redemption, that he has entered your heart, he keeps you secure before him. And so here is this, this picture of assurance. Don't let your hearts condemn you. If your hearts are condemning you, ask yourself the question, am I believing in Jesus? Have I trusted in him for assurance? That's where your assurance comes from. If your hearts are condemning you and you're in sin, the Bible says, confess your sin. And he is faithful and just, and he will cleanse you, and he will make you righteous. If your heart's condemning him and you can find no evidence from the scriptures through prayer, through talking to other Christians, that what you're actually feeling guilty of is actually like of anything that God says is not okay, then your confession is like, Lord, take this from me. Lord, help me to have a clear conscience. I am beating myself up over this thing, which you are not beating me up over, and it's hindering my relationship with you. And so today we're going to conclude with taking the Lord's Supper. Um, 
I think the guys are going to come forward. So we're, we're in the second month of going to the old school communion. So I think they're, they're going to head on up. And they're going to be, begin to uh, pass this out to you. Um, the first part of, of communion is just to, to take time to confess, uh, to ask God to show you areas in your life that you need to uh, relinquish, areas that you've fallen short of. Um, it's a time for us just to confess and to let God uh, cleanse you and restore you. So as this goes out, just focus on confession. All right, so we have juice and a cracker, actual real juice and a real cracker, unlike the last two years. Um, I believe that communion is like a reminder to us to push forward, to push towards the intimacy that we have with Jesus. It's a reminder to us that this intimacy is only made available to us through what Jesus has done on the cross. If you're like me and you struggle with a heart that like condemns you, reminds you of how you have fallen short, communion is a great time to remind ourselves that, that Christians are just saved sinners. We're not uh, sinless and we've, uh, we've accomplished perfection and therefore we have communion with God. We are sinners who have come to the place where we recognize that the only thing that we bring to the table is our sin. God loves us. God knows our sin. There is nothing that's hidden from him. He desires us to be like him. He desires to have relationship with him. As we've been studying Genesis, where we know that from the very beginning, as, as soon as man fell, God came up with a plan to reconcile humanity with himself. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, now that you guys have stuff, I'll just read it for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, we read, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. If we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. 
So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So I always take this backwards, verses uh, 27 through 33. It's sort of the first part. This is, this is the time where we're told before we take communion that we're to bring ourselves before the Lord, we're to get right with him, we're acknowledging that our relationship with him isn't based on anything that, that we have done. It's, it's solely based on what he has done. We recognize um, our, the, our continual problem of a sin nature and that we still fall short and miss the mark. And so we're told before we take communion that we're to confess, get right with God, um, acknowledge our shortfalls, and that we need him. And I think that's the key. Lord, I need you. Then the second part is found in verse 23 through 24, dealing with the elements. We have the broken cracker and the juice. This is to remind us of Jesus' body that was broken for us. It's symbolic of his body that was broken, uh, the wounds that were inflicted on him that were due us for our sin, but he absorbed them in full. The juice is symbolic of the new covenant that through Jesus' single death, his one time on the cross, as his body was broken and his blood was shed, through his blood, we can enter into this new covenant with him, this everlasting covenant. And then finally, the third part of communion that is so often overlooked is found in verse 26. We're told that whoever eats, excuse me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as we hold these elements, as we've taken the time to confess our sins, as we've taking the time to remember what Jesus did on the, on the cross for us, we're reminded that as he departed from this earth, he left his followers with the Great Commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And so as we take this, we're to remind ourselves that there's a whole world out there that doesn't know Jesus, and he has entrusted us with this commission of going and sharing the gospel and being a light unto the world. And so with that, let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Father, I thank you that you are greater than our consciences. Father, as an individual who often struggles with feeling unworthy, uh, feeling like I missed the mark and beating myself up over whatever the shortfall was, Father, I thank you that your word tells us that you are greater than our hearts that so often condemn us. And Father, we come before you now and we acknowledge our shortcomings. We acknowledge, Lord, that we have brought nothing to the table that deserves our being rewarded, deserves any sort of merit from you. We come to you as people who are drowning and in need of a Savior and that our only way out of the mess that we are in is through Jesus. As we hold this cracker and this juice, we thank you, Father, that Jesus came. He lived the perfect life. He went to the cross on our behalf that as your wrath was poured out upon him, he absorbed it all in full. I don't think this is something that we can fully grasp. The idea that another person can absorb the punishment that was due us. But he did. And I thank you, God, that it is by faith alone that we can come before you. 
that we can enter into your presence. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us uh, to understand the significance of this, this truth, this reality, that we have access, we have fellowship, we have this koinonia with you that is made available through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I pray, Father, that you would help us to truly stand in freedom, to understand that we have been redeemed, that we have been bought back by you, Help us to live our lives in a manner that is worthy unto you. Father, we pray that as we take communion today, you would place uh, your burden for this lost world upon our hearts, that we would have a desire to step out beyond our comfort zone, that we would uh, live our lives in a way that uh, prompts questions by those that know us, Lord, that we would be willing to share Christ to share about the good news with our friends, with our family, with our co-workers, uh, with those that we encounter. We love you, Father, and it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.